some of you may have heard the name of Jim Corbett but there will be many more who wouldn't have heard the name he was a hunter a naturalist and a writer of course who served in the British Indian Army in the early part of the 20th century and therefore he spent most of his life in India and in the region which is now called as Uttarakhand there are quite a few books he has written and among them more popular ones are my india jungle stories and manitos of kumau in fact in all these books you'll find the stories of hunting of animals and particularly these animals tigers and leopards they attacking human beings in fact such was the reputation of jim corbett that local indian people they used to call him every time there was this danger of finding a man eating leopard or tiger around and of course he used to hunt them and most of his books they revolve around these ideas his local experiences as a british man and how he experienced the life here so i've got this collection of short stories with me which is called the hunter's friends in which he talks about his his life as a hunter and the people he worked with and the friends he made here so there are different chapters and each chapter dedicated to one individual and i will pick one such individual who is called buddhu here and uh, i will narrate that chapter to you in this podcast so let's start buddhu was a man of the depressed class and during all the years i knew him i never saw him smile his life had been too hard and the iron had entered deep into his very soul he was about 35 years of age a tall gaunt man with a wife and two young children when he applied to me for work at his request i put him on to trans shipping coal from from uh, broad gauge trucks to meter gauge wagons at mokame ghat for in this task men and women could work together and buddhu wanted his wife to work with him the broad gauge trucks and meter gauge wagons stood opposite each other with a 4 foot wide sloping platform between and the coal had to be partly shoveled and partly carried in baskets from the trucks into the wagons the work was cruelly hard for there was no covering to the platform in winter the men and women worked in bitter cold often wet with rain for days on end and in summer the brick platform and the iron flo- floors of the trucks and wagons blistered their bare feet a shovel in the hands of a novice working for his bread and the bread of his children is a cruel tool the first day's work leaves the hands red and sore and the back with an ache that is a torment on the second day blisters form on the hands 
and the ache in the back becomes an even greater torment. On the third day, the blisters break and become septic and the back can with difficulty be straightened. Therefore, for a week or ten days, only guts and plenty of them can keep the sufferer at work, as I know from experience. Buddha and his wife went through all these phases, and often when they had done sixteen hours piece work and were dragging themselves to the quarters I had provided for them, I was tempted to tell them they had suffered enough and should look for other less strenuous work. But they were making good wages, better than they had made before. So I let them carry on. And the day came when, with hardened hands and backs that no longer ached, they left their work with as brisk and as light a step as they had approached it. I had some 200 men and women transshipping coal at that time, for the coal traffic was as heavy as it always was in the summer. India was an exporting country in those days and the wagons that took the grain, opium, indigo, hides and bones to Calcutta returned from the collieries in Bengal loaded with coal, 500,000 tons of which passed through Mokame Ghat. One day, Buddha and his wife were absent from work. Chamari, the headman of the coal gang, informed me that Buddha had received a postcard the previous day and had left that morning with his family, saying he would return to work as soon as it was possible for him to do so. Two months later, the family returned and reoccupied their quarters and Buddha and his wife worked as industriously as they had always done. At about the same time, the following year, Buddha, whose frame had now filled out and his wife, who had lost her haggard look, again absented themselves from work. On this occasion, they were absent for three months and looked tired and worn out on their return. Except when consulted or when information was voluntarily given, I never inquired into the private affairs of my work people, for Indians are sensitive on this point. So I did not know why Buddha periodically left his work, which he invariably did after receiving a postcard. The post for the work people was delivered to the headmen and distributed by them to the men and women working under them. So I instructed Chamari to send Buddha to me the next time he received a card. Nine months later, when the coal traffic was unusually heavy and every man and woman in my employ was working to full capacity, Buddha, carrying a postcard in his hand, presented himself at my office. The postcard was in a script that I could not read, so I asked Buddha to read it to me. This he could not do for he had not been taught to read and write, but he said Chamari had read it to him and that it was an order from his master to come at once as the crops were ready to harvest. The following was Buddha's story as he told it to me that day in my office. And his story is the story of millions of poor people in India. My grandfather, who was a field labourer, 
borrowed two rupees from the banya of the village in which he lived. The banya retained one of the rupees as advance interest of for one year and made my grandfather put his thumb mark to an entry in his bhaikata. When my grandfather was able to do so from time to time, he paid the banya a few annas by way of interest. On the death of my grandfather, my father took over the debt, which then amounted to 50 rupees. During my father's lifetime, the debt increased to 115 rupees. In the meantime, the old Baniya died and his son, who reigned in his place, sent for me when my father died and informed me that as the family debt now amounted to a considerable sum, it would be necessary for me to give him a stamped and duly executed document. This I did, and as I had no money to pay for the stamped paper and for the registration of the document, the Baniya advanced the required amount and added it to the debt, which together with interest now amounted to 130 rupees. As a special favor, the Baniya consented to reduce the interest to 25%. This favor he granted me on the condition that my wife and I helped him each year to harvest his crops until the debt was paid in full. This agreement for my wife and I to work for the Baniya without wages was written on another piece of paper to which I put my thumb mark. For 10 years, my wife and I have helped to harvest the Baniya's crops and each year after the Baniya has made up the account and entered it on the back of the stamped paper, he takes my thumb impression on the document. I do not know how much the debt has increased since I took it over. For years, I was not able to pay anything towards it. But since I have been working for you, I have paid 5, 7 and 13 rupees. Now 25 rupees altogether. Budhu had never dreamed of repudiating the debt. To repudiate a debt was unthinkable. Not only would it blacken his own face, but what was far worse, it would blacken the reputation of his father and grandfather. So he continued to pay what he could in cash and in labor and lived on without hope of ever liquidating the debt. On his death, it would be passed on to his eldest son. Having elicited from Buddhu the information that there was a Wakil or a lawyer in the village in which the Baniya lived and taken his name and address. I told Budhu to return to work and said I would see what could be done with the Baniya. Thereafter followed a long correspondence with the Wakil, a stout-hearted Brahmin who became a firm ally after the Baniya had insulted him by ordering him out of his house and telling him to mind his own business. From the Wakil, I learned that the Bhaikata inherited by the Baniya from his father could not be produced in a court of law as evidence for it bore the thumb marks of men long since dead. The Baniya had tricked Buddhu into executing a document which clearly stated that Buddhu had borrowed 150 rupees at a rate of 25% interest. 
The vakil advised me not to contest the case for the document Buddhu had executed was valid and Buddhu had admitted its validity by paying three installments as part of interest and by putting his thumb marks to these payments on the document. When I had sent the vakil a money order in full satisfaction of the debt plus interest at 25%, the banya surrendered the legal documents but he refused to surrender the private agreement binding Buddhu and his wife to work without wages on harvesting his crops. It was only when I threatened, on the vakil's advice, to prosecute for extortion that he handed the agreement over to the vakil. Buddhu was very uneasy while these transactions were dragging on. He never spoke to me on the subject but I could see from the way in which he looked at me whenever I passed him at work that he was speculating as to whether he had been wise in leaving me to deal with all-powerful Banya and what his position would be if the Banya suddenly appeared and demanded an explanation for his conduct. And then one day I received by registered post a heavily sealed letter containing a thumb-marked legal document an agreement also thumb-marked, a stamped receipt for the vakil's fees and a letter informing me that Buddhu was a free man now. The whole transaction had cost me 250 rupees. Buddhu was leaving work that evening when I met him, took the documents out of the envelope and told him to hold them while I said to Match them. No, Sahib, no, he said. You must not burn these papers. For I am now your slave, God willing. I will one day pay off my debt to you. Not only did Buddha never smile, but he also was a very silent man. When I told him that as he would not let me burn the papers, he could keep them, he only put his hands together and touched my feet. But when he raised his head and turned to walk away, tears were ploughing furrows down his cold-crimmed face. Only one of millions freed of a debt that had oppressed three generations. But had the number been legion, my pleasure could not have been greater, nor could any words have affected me more deeply then Buddha's mute gesture and the tears that blinded him as he stumbled away to tell his wife that the Banya's debt had been paid and that they were free.